Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Coming up on this week's show, a Seinfeld retro adventure game. A big update on Sonic Extreme. And we get the inside story on Games Master with Dominic Diamond. This week's show is brought to you by our friends at Harry's. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 223, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And it is that time of the week again, just before the weekend, an hour-ish of retro gaming chat. We talk about the news stories that have been happening over the last seven days and just kind of reminisce about the golden age of video games. Now, obviously... With the show been going like, what, nearly four and a half years now, we've had so many legends and huge names from the world of video games on our podcast. We bring you a guest every week, of course. This week, though, I think this is by far the most in-demand guest that we've ever had. Yeah, this is Dominic Diamond, and we've always wanted to have him on the show since the very start. Actually, I would have loved him to be the first guest. But, you know, <laughs> Dominic was a host of Games Master, and Games Master was pretty much the biggest gaming television show ever on British TV. And it ran from like 1992 to 98. So if you think of the progression of games and what kind of changed then, it was fantastic. And also kind of had 126 episodes. Well, it's really hard to explain to people that might not be from the UK or maybe people, you know, too young to remember Games Master, people that weren't around in the 90s. You know, we do have listeners that were, are quite young. Um, games Master really was a revolution because it was the first mainstream video games TV show here in Britain. It used to be on when you have your dinner after you got back from school. Games Master always felt a bit more edgy, didn't it? Even if you were like, you know, 11 or 12 years old when you were watching it, it kind of felt like what the older, cooler kids were watching. Well, before that, television was basically guys in cardigans, stuffy shirts talking about computers or, or scientific kind of shows like Tomorrow's World, where this really brought the gaming culture in there. It started competitive gaming had a lot of kid focus, but also a lot of rude jokes, innuendos and kind of crazy guests as well. Every week they get a celebrity on and they get them to kind of battle the kids in like an early version of esports, really. I was going to say, the, my earliest memories kind of like of Games Master is, for one, I remember, you know, the giant robot that, that looked like a cross between Anthony Hopkins and Robocop. The Games Master. Patrick Moore. <laughs> <laughs> but I also remember, I've got vague memories of these kind of like blonde page free kind of celebrities, like playing PlayStation games against kids and doing terribly. <laughs> well, that was it, because, I mean, really... It kind of put on TV what we were doing at home. I mean, obviously, I imagine, Joe, you weren't sitting at home playing video games with Page 3 Girls. But I mean, when, it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> when you had your mates over, though, it was kind of that couch gaming experience brought to the big screen or well, the small screen. And I, I think that's what I loved about Games Master, that you get a couple of kids on there battling it out with each other, battling it out with celebrities who, like you said, were generally awful at video games as well. But also in the middle, they'd have, like, you know, pretty much all the main 
journalists from the biggest gaming mags at the time would come on and they'd do commentary over the challenges. They'd have game reviews in the middle as well. There'd be the consultation zone where kids would go on and get cheats. And it was all kind of packaged together, like you said, with Patrick Moore. Now, Patrick <laughs> was a really bizarre choice for the show. Bear in mind, he did, had no idea what was going on with he, video He games. presented he The Sky at Night, which was yeah. a, a, an astrology show about... Kind of gazing at astronomy stars and stuff. Yeah, and he presented yeah, that astronomy. since the sixties as well. So he was he was really kind of clueless about gaming and a very odd choice to be the uh, games master. But of course, the main star attraction was Dominic Diamond. Now he was the cheeky host of the show, and like you said, he'd kind of come out with a lot of these innuendos pretty much in every episode. That as kids probably completely went over our heads. But if your dad was watching in the background, he'd always chuckle to himself, wouldn't he? Yeah, so it's kind of um, the naughty 90s. And there were other shows that were on at the time, like um, Bad Influence and there was Games World as well. But Games Master was really the kind of edgy one. It had all the cool bands on. It was kind of on close to the weekend. You know, it had that kind of TFI Friday um, 90s kind of fun vibe. Yeah, and I think, you know, because it was such an exciting time in gaming, when it began, you know, like the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive were new. And then by the time it finished in 1998, obviously the N64 was out then, PlayStation was, you know, well-established. So it really captured a very interesting time in gaming. And, you know, it was just loads of fun to watch. And actually, you can watch them all on YouTube. If you're listening to this, maybe you're outside the UK and you've never watched Games Master before, I'll put a link to a playlist in this week's show notes where you can check out every single episode. But how many tweets have we got, like, every week for the last four years asking for Dominic Diamond? Oh, we've had so many. And the thing is, <laughs> Dominic Diamond hasn't done an interview for a long time. And there's lots of legendary things that happen that um, everybody's always wondered about. You know, did, did he leave in season three because of a McDonald's sponsorship? And, you know, this interview, we, we talked to him about all of it. It's very candid and open. Fantastic. Yeah, he doesn't hold back. So Dominic Diamond is our special guest. He's coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in the next 15 minutes. Now let's get straight into this week's news stories then now. Sonic Extreme, of course, that was kind of the game that most people say was one of the main reasons that the Sega Saturn failed. Yeah, so the Sega Saturn never had its actual like own Sonic game. You know, the Mega Drive had um, Sonic 1, 2 and 3 and Sonic and Knuckles and obviously the Dreamcast had uh, Sonic Adventure 1 and 2, but the Sega Saturn was meant to get Sonic Extreme, but it never did. So it kind of had like a bit of a troubled uh, development cycle. So it was originally going to be for the Sega Mega Drive and it was going to be like an isometric view, kind of similar to Sonic 3D. Then they were going to move it to the 32X. That didn't happen. Then they started building it for the Sega Saturn. They were using the Nights into Dreams engine. Nights into Dreams came out. Sega Japan made that. Sega of America started using that, that game engine to make it. And then when they found out the creator of that, game engine Yuji Naka his name was kicked off he said you're not using it if you're using it I'm leaving Sega and he was like the biggest guy in Sega so they couldn't afford to lose him so they scrapped it and by this point they were years into development so it just never happened unfortunately I think that was obviously a major screw-up wasn't it because I mean that was really I mean you know Sonic he's always been Sega's mascot and not having a main Sonic game on their new console really messed it up I think they kind of made a little a little thing called Sonic Jam which was like yeah. a little compilation to try and please the fans. But um, it, it never really satisfied anybody to the level that this game would have. Yeah. So so what's happened now? So Ravi was telling me about this earlier on. It's really interesting. Yeah. So we've covered this story before because there's been footage that's appeared on promotional tapes, stuff like that. And uh, there was a name for it at one point, Sonic Space as well. 
Um, okay. Now, there was a developer called Chris Sen, and what he did was he basically leaked everything for the project. He was the lead developer. So he, right. he's leaked absolutely everything. And the problem was he didn't have access to that Knights into Dreams engine. Now he's okay. managed to get access to that. But the game was in a PC executable form, which didn't really make sense because it was meant to come out for the Saturn. So they've they've found little tags inside the source code that's enabled them to create a Saturn version of it. So what's actually happened? This has been going on since 2014. Now the Knights community have actually managed to uh, build this kind of version of Sonic Extreme, but using the Knights engine in the original style of how it would be. So it looks like it's eventually going to become playable for people. So this is the idea is this actually could be available to be played on Sega Saturn soon. Yeah, yeah. The kind of missing game. And it's been compiled from all these different elements over time, kind of finally put together since 2014 to create this fantastic title. That's that's dedication, that is. So it was being made in like 93, got cancelled in 95, unearthed in 2014 and now somebody's unearthed the Knights engine and they've got it running pretty much yeah and that's that's in this thread on neogaf it has like every little section that they find so they find you know footage of one certain level in a show that's being displayed by someone who's showing it off and then the developer actually goes oh look i've got a copy here's here's the level and he kind of proves that he has that version with new footage and then it's just a fascinating kind of tale, and it looks actually like quite a cool title. When you see something like that that you always wanted to play as a kid, and kind of those dreams get fulfilled you know, all these years later, that's cool in itself anyway, regardless of how good the game is. Yeah, and our listener, Destroyed007, mentioned this in the Discord, and I was just absolutely amazed. I'm like, thank you so much, because I wouldn't have known about this before. You know what I'm thinking? They need to get this on. You know, obviously now this game's available. Maybe Sega are going to look at that and think, yeah, we'll, we'll bring out the, the Sega Saturn Mini now. The time's right. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good start. I thought you were going to say they'll put it on the Switch or something. But uh, no, that's an even better idea there, Dan. <laughs> there we go. You can have that one on me, Sega. Right, talking about great ideas as well. I mean, I was a big fan of Seinfeld back in the 90s. And obviously that was like, you know, a huge comedy show. And I still think to this day, the last ever episode of Seinfeld is still the most watched thing ever on American television. Have you seen uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm? Because they do, yes. they do the last episode again. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah fantastic. <laughs> well, I mean, it was. I mean, obviously Friends, a lot of people love that. But really, like, Seinfeld was kind of the proto-Friends, really. You know, it kind of influenced Friends quite a lot. Yeah, there was only like a year crossover between yeah. Seinfeld and Friends, isn't it? Like, the, the last season of Seinfeld was like on the TV, the first season of Friends, if I'm right. Yeah, there was definitely a crossover there. Um, yeah. But the characters, and everything, I mean, it was a hilarious show. It's one of these, I mean, I think you, you've had my series one, two, and three box set for about 10 years now, Joe, and I haven't got around to Yeah, you, you lent it me about 10 years ago, like, watch Seinfeld, it's amazing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I will. And it, it's literally been in the DVD collection for about 10 years now. <laughs> Well, this might inspire you to finally dig it out and give it a watch. Because um, these are essentially my two favourite things combined. I love Seinfeld, and you know that I love point-and-click adventure games as well. Well, there's been this, um, it's kind of a pitch essentially, of what a Seinfeld kind of retro-style adventure game could look like. Now, this is uh, an indie studio, an indie developer called uh, Jaken Janerka and an animator called Ivan Dixon. They've worked on a lot of kind of indie games over the last few years, but they've put together this minute-long video kind of showing what it would look like, essentially, if, say, for example, LucasArts made a point-and-click Seinfeld game in around 1998. 
that's how you can imagine yeah, it. it looks like one of yeah. those later lucas arts like day of the tentacle or or that kind yeah. of period i mean it's got that kind of upscaled high resolution but still pixel art look to it hasn't it and even even the font and everything it's the same font that you got on like monkey island and loom and those kind of games so i'm I, gonna play I watched- I was going to say, I, uh, I watched the trailer just before this and like it felt very sarcastic, but I feel like that's what Seinfeld's like. <laughs> well, let me play you a bit of the trailer then. It's a minute long. I'll link this up in our show notes. This is what we could get from a Seinfeld point-and-click adventure game. Have you ever wanted to be a terrible person with no consequences? Live in a nice apartment in New York and complain about the tiny little inconveniences ruining your life? Now you can with Seinfeld, the game about nothing. Play as Jerry, George, Elaine, but not Kramer. No one can control Kramer. <laughs> I, I like the slack bass in there as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a Seinfeld theme tune. They've got it in as well. And it's uh, even the graphics and everything, the way they've rendered the, the look of the apartment and, and the diner that they go to, it looks really good. And I just saw this and I thought, yeah, I really want to play this now. The saying, I mean, it's only a pitch at the moment and it might not come out because of obviously copyright issues and whether they can get a license for it. But yeah, I'd love to see this. I think it'd be it, such it a It seems like something they'd be able to crowdfund really easily. Yeah. Like, you know, but obviously, like you say, it's just getting the uh, the copyrights and stuff like that and the licensing. But I feel like if they put that out, like they'd, they'd hit their target straight away. And I've got a feeling, I mean, I'd imagine that Jerry, I mean, obviously I don't know the guy, but from what I've seen, you know, in interviews, he seems a pretty laid back kind of guy. I'd imagine that Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David would probably be all right with this because, I mean, essentially, they're not having to do any work, are they? And it's not like Seinfeld's getting licensed out much these days. No, I can't imagine. And, and like, from what I've seen as well, I've I've seen, you know, uh, clips and interviews with him and stuff, and he always does seem like a laugh. So I can't imagine him having a strap about it or anything. I, lo- I love the way that they've done the text as well because it reminds me of uh, they've got like little notepaper and the menus are popping up on little notepaper and it looks handwritten. Reminds me of that kind of period of the games. And Jerry's always been quite into his technology as well. I mean, if you watched the original series of Seinfeld, he kind of got like a new Mac every year. So there'd be like, I know the latest model Macintosh should always be in, in his apartment at the back of it. And do you remember he did that really cheesy Microsoft commercial with Bill Gates about 10 years ago? No, I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cringeworthy. Um, oh, wow. Put it in the show notes for us. I, I've got a feeling it was an advert for Windows Vista, so probably not something you talk oh, about much anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if I track that down, I'll link it up. But uh, I'm really hoping this happens now. Again, the, not like we're talking about Sonic Extreme there. There's nothing worse than getting all hyped up for a game and then it not actually coming to fruition. Right, now, before we get into our chat with Dominic Diamond, let's just take a moment to give a big thank you to this week's supporter, our amazing friends at Harry's. Now, even though a lot of us are staying indoors all the time at the moment, it is still important to stay groomed. I know, Ravi, you actually cut your own hair the other day. Oh, God, don't talk about it. <laughs> I, um, the front looks good, but the back... Um, the, you, know, you know when you have the razor guard and it just kind of slips yeah. off? And then you hear, and you hear like, and you're like, that doesn't sound right. Well, at least it only took a chunk out of your hair, not your head. Yeah, luckily no one will see it. I'll probably grow it back in a couple of weeks. But obviously, hopefully by the time we do all go back out, you don't want to come out looking all scruffy and everything, which is why this is really important. It's really important to stay groomed. Now, our friends at Harry's, now if you're not familiar with them, they've got such a good story behind them as well. The thing about it is, it's two ordinary guys, Jeff and Andy, and they got fed up with the world of overpriced razors, and they decided they're on a mission to fix shaving. And the only way that they could do this and ensure that they've got that top quality was by buying their own factory. So that's exactly what they did. And the idea is that they take less profit and they offer great quality products for a 
their price. And their amazing blades are almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. So what we want you to do is get shaving with Harry's today. Now, I've been using this now for about six months. I'm a total Harry's convert. Before, I mean, I think I mentioned to you guys, I used to use an electric razor. Until I started using Harry's, I didn't realise that the fact that I wasn't actually getting a close shave, and I wondered why I was always itchy and stuff like that. But actually, with Harry's, you know, I've become a convert. We've had loads of tweets of listeners saying how much they love it as well. So we'd like to give you your own trial so you can get shaving with Harry's today. You can claim your trial set for just £3.95. And obviously now, it's a very good time to try something new so you can support our podcast and get your trail set delivered straight to your door including a razor handle a five blade cartridge foam shave gel and a travel blade cover as well by heading to this website right now harrys.com forward slash retro that's harrys.com forward slash retro thanks to our good friends at harry's now of course we do have a patreon running at the moment we are gearing up for our next uh, patrons only hangout that was so much fun a couple of weeks ago i'm already really hyped for the next one and of course the reason that we're doing this is because i mean obviously we are recording the show remotely it is still weird guys i'm in the studio looking over at two empty chairs where, where your I, I miss you guys out. <laughs> it, uh, I just want to see Ravi's hair in person. <laughs> <laughs> There's motivation. Really, um, the lockdown won't be uh, changed <laughs> until my hair grows back. <laughs> yeah, can you put a request into Boris? <laughs> so, listen, I mean, we are hoping to all get back together, hopefully not too far in the future. And the idea is, you know, to keep this show going. I mean, I'm in the studio now. You guys are at home. This studio that we're in is not actually ours, though. And rather than me doing it at home and the show not being the best quality and the dynamic, I mean, we're kind of getting used to this. This, but we do prefer doing it in person. It, you know, it, it's so, so much more that we can do then. And obviously, if we've got our own studio, the idea is that we want to do more of this kind of thing, you know, extra podcasts, video content that we want to put out as well, and also giving us the flexibility of being able to record guests at any hour of the day, because that's something that's always kind of limited us, you know, that we have to record guests at certain hours. Oh, when we get, when we get Australian guests on, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's, that's some crazy times in the morning. So um, <laughs> if we could come in and do that, you know, it's really impractical to be like we want to come in the studio at 5 a.m yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly so uh, we'd appreciate any help that we can get guys and obviously going to ensure that this show has got a future you know completely safeguards that we've got our own studio it's there sorted so for making a donation on our patreon you'll be helping us out and also there's loads of little perks on there as well loads of different tiers to suit you and you will get a mention on a future episode in the retro hour hall of fame just like this week thank you so much to zanderthal aiden olone Andy Tricklebank, James Burr, and Bjorn Jorgensen, who all made donations into our Patreon. And if you'd like to do the same, it will be massively appreciated. You'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. And right now, then, I think we've delayed it long enough. Let's get on to the main event, getting the history of the most legendary British gaming TV show. This week's special guest, the inside story on Games Master with Dominic Diamond. Listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite bit of the show. You know, I've been thinking actually over the last what four years that we've been doing this podcast, we've had some legends on the show. We've had Tom Kalinsky, the former US and Europe president of Sega. We've had Nolan Bushnell, the father of video games. Al Alcorn, the guy who invented Pong on recently. But there is one person that we've had more requests than anybody else. Honestly, we get so many tweets going, when are you going to get Dominic Diamond on the podcast? And I'm pleased to say, we've finally done it. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Dominic. I apologise for my tardiness. 
<laughs> I know it's going to be worth the wait. I mean, I was watching you today on Twitch. I mean, you're, you're doing like a, a live Twitch show every afternoon at the moment. Yes, I'm single-handedly saving the world from coronavirus lockdown by telling uh, r- ribald tales of mine from the 90s and other humorous stuff that happens to come to mind. And uh, yeah, it's okay. I, I don't really understand it. I've only been on Twitch for like about 10 days. It's all thoroughly confusing to me. But uh, yeah, I'm hanging in there. It's I, I mean, it's an incredible platform. I, I look at what some people are doing. I'm I'm going on this uh, this girl called Wee Claire, who's got like an, an interview show about lists. And I'm going on that on Saturday. And she's like got this kind of cartoon studio set up with her face in like a, beside the announcer's desk and the guest on a telly. And that level of creativity is fantastic. And people like her can just do these shows without having to get in touch with a TV company and go and see the commissioning editor and get the brush off. So it's, uh, yeah, it's new and it's exciting. Unfortunately, I am neither one of those things. So I feel like a little (laughs) bit of an intruder into the kids' new broadcast playground. I still don't really understand the internet after all these years. And remember that Games Master was that TV show that had a challenge on called Is the Internet Full of Cack? Where we had a whole thing to see what people could find on the internet. And famously, at the end of that show, I said, nope, the internet is rubbish. It will never catch on. And that's ironic. (laughs) I now sit, sit here like 20, 30 years later, and I know I'm about to record this with you guys. So I go around my wife and my kids and I'm like, Nobody use the internet at all for the next hour and a half because it can probably only handle one thing at a time. But I mean, you know, when we obviously we're going to talk about Games Master, but I mean, I, I've seen so many things on Twitter, you know, over the years, people, you know, little rumors are float around like, you know, where's Dominic these days? People like, you know, he's in Canada. He's a farmer now as well. And that, that's true, isn't it? You, you've lived in Canada for about a decade. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, 11, 11 years now in January, this past January. Um, and uh, I did. Uh, I, I was a farmer of sorts initially when I moved out here. Everybody has that midlife crisis where they go and buy a Harley Davidson motorbike. Unfortunately, I bought a llama farm in Nova Scotia. Nice. Instead, I was, um, I wasn't, the UK is funny. I, I, the 90s were great because I was single. Uh, but then when you start having a wife and kids, life changes. And I found myself in Scotland and, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I was I was really happy with my work I was doing on radio up there for XFM Scotland. But Britain uh, was becoming a bit of a nastier, colder, more xenophobic place. Uh, everybody seemed really angry. And yeah. I had my own particular challenges as a high profile Catholic Celtic fan in Glasgow, which is, is unfortunately is, is very dangerous. Um, uh, th- there was people posting details of, you know, the pubs I drank and urging folk to wait outside with hammers. Uh, it's a very Good. different world, that whole kind of, um, you know, religious bigotry thing up there. So one night I was uh, uh, um, attacked by a gang wielding knives around the corner from my house. And I thought, OK, maybe we need to look into another country to bring the kids up. And my wife uh, was uh, was Canadian. So we, we moved out here and I bought a llama farm in Nova Scotia. By the time I got out here, the uh, the llamas had all gone, which was a bit annoying. Uh, so instead, I, I planted a vegetable field and I, I made some flower meadows and I uh, ran out of money in a year and then started again right from the bottom, <laughs> doing the only thing I know how to do, talking rubbish, four pennies, 
and started at the bottom of Canadian radio and clawed my way up to the top ish. <laughs> Being a farmer does sound like very hard work, though. It's fantastic, though. I absolutely mm. love gardening. Gardening is probably my favorite thing in the world. I know that that probably shatters the hearts of, of, uh, of lovely kind of geeks everywhere who'd <laughs> like to think of me. Oh, no, I, I, I'm a big gardener as well. I think it's really kind of mindful. And it, and, it, and it really helps uh, just kind of escape the modern world, you know. Ravi's Instagram's all pictures of parsnips and cucumbers and everything. Yeah, p- <laughs> pictures of parsnips. I think I saw them support REM uh, in, in 2001. <laughs> the, um, no, I think you're exactly right, Ravi. And, and the one thing I love about gardening is that um, I think when you work in broadcasting, you, uh, you can work really hard like getting pitches for shows off the ground and then they don't get commissioned and you think it's really unfair. I think gardening is one of the most wonderfully fair things and it's one of the few things in life you get out of it what you put in. If you go out there every day and you weed and you plant your seeds and you water, this stuff grows and it's incredibly rewarding. So did you uh, get into any computer and gaming in the kind of 80s? And I guess in your teenage years, it was probably the peak Spectrum versus C64 days. Yes, I remember the day distinctly. My mother came home with what she said was a computer we were going to learn word processing and typing on. Uh, an admirable pursuit, you might think, for a mother. But unfortunately, that machine was the ZX Spectrum. Now, <laughs> I... I don't know how many great novels were written on the ZX Spectrum and subsequently printed out on that grey, waxy toilet roll paper printer (laughs) thing and sent off to publishers, but I suspect few were. Uh, Within days, my mum's dreams of us learning how to type had uh, been thrown out the window. My siblings and I had taken over the Spectrum we were so obsessed that we, we had strict timetables. We literally had, there was four of us, and we had one-hour rotations each, and then you had to go out of the gaming cupboard and someone else had to come in. And unfortunately, if you remember the spectrum, 55 minutes out of that hour was loading the game yeah. off the cassette and hoping you wouldn't get our tape loading error. So it was um, it was a bit of a challenge, but... It was uh, it was absolutely fantastic. I think um, uh, Horace goes skiing, and the wonderfully named Penetrator were the t- first two games <laughs> that we had. <laughs> and um, Penetrator was that uh, it was that um, rip off of the Scramble arcade game where you flew into caverns and blew things up. And it also, and this must have been incredible at the time. I think it was Melbourne Games might have made it anyway. Um, that you had a level designer in that game, which is incredible to think of that in like 1980. And all it meant was that you could put lots of easy to blow up objects in your design level and it would slow down so much because of everything on screen. You would, you literally invented time travel. You could go back to the sixties just by, just by playing that game. But no, those were the first two games. And then Manic Miner would have been the third and then I guess, uh, well, Jet Set Willy, the game that I still don't believe anybody ever actually managed to complete. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the football match day, first football game I ever played. Uh, Kevin Thomas, football manager, first football management game, both superb. It's amazing, I you know, and I, I hate to be one of those guys who are like, oh, it was so much better back in my day. But when I think about ZX Spectrum games, I think about things like Pajama Rama, 
and uh, the, the, all those ultimate games like Attic Attack and Head Over Heels, phenomenal levels of kind of creativity and self-contained gaming that you felt a real uh, a real sense of achievement. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever felt the same sense of achievement in my gaming life as I did when I completed Attic Attack. Mm. And I think that one of my criticisms about games these days is that there's a horrible level of, of cynicism about them. The games are released and they're not finished. Then you have patches and updates and microtransactions. And, and it's just, it's horrible. It's a horrible, cynical level now. And, and that's how I look at things like an old pal of mine, Tommy Tallarico. So I think that's good, and I and I welcome I welcome that. I think back then it was it almost seemed a bit more like a cottage industry, and people were doing it a bit more for fun than. The, and obviously there was like money to be made, quite a lot of money then. But it wasn't like today where the gaming industry is bigger than Hollywood, and it feels like there's less risks taken in the mainstream gaming world. Yeah, I do wonder if um, I wonder how much those people actually made back then. You know, people like Jeff Minter, who was you know obviously like the kind of the Alan Moore of video games with his attack of the the mutant camels. Did people like that make money, or was it was it some guy at the top of the tree, you know, Mister Ocean Software or whatever that managed to Hoover Hoover it all up? But uh, but yeah, I mean, there was never. I don't think they ever had that conversation with Jeff Minter about the uh, 20th century Fox movie version of Attack of the Mutant Camel. It's like, like, you know, you would have today with like Doom and Silent Hill and, you know, and stuff like that. I, I think most guests we've had on from that period, uh, including guys like Rob Hubbard, who did some absolutely amazing music, usually says it's like 100 quid or 50 quid in an envelope. And that's no. about it. Yeah. No, that's that's less than I make off Twitch. No, that's oh those. I feel really sad. This is the worst podcast interview ever. <laughs> <laughs> There's me feeling all great thanks to my gardening, and now you've just gone and wrecked my mental health. Let's bring it back round. <laughs> this is this is worse. This is like the this is like the gaming equivalent of Operation U Tree. No, my childhood kind of things are just being shattered now by you, evil miscreant pair. Well, let's get on to something. Round that. Yeah. Let's get on to some happy times, I hope. Uh, but you went to uh, Bristol University to study drama there. Then, was that a happy time? Oh, absolutely fantastic. I, um, I was at Bristol University, 88 to 91, and it was a brilliant time to be in. I mean, Bristol is just one of the best cities ever to be in at any time. And then there was a great music scene springing up and you had like a Tricky and uh, Nana Cherry and Portishead, all these bands coming up and you would like, you'd hear them on the radio and then you'd see them just kind of hanging out in the student haunts because they were the same age as us. And it was just that there was a real kind of vibrancy. You know, you just get these times. My, it was just before Manchester went through it. Oh, I thought, no, this was actually, this was Manchester times as well. You know, we'd go to all these clubs in Bristol and you'd have the Manchester music scene springing up and the scene in Bristol. So it was, uh, it was amazing. It was a real hot bed of creativity and I was I happened to be there at a time where there was uh, just the, the most amazingly talented people especially in the, the department of drama itself well you also had some uh, famous alumni there as well like Simon Pegg and David Walliams and interesting with David Walliams as well he later worked as a researcher uh, with big boy Barry on games world as well that's right. Yes, in fact, David actually appeared on Games World as well. He was Big Boy, but he was Leslie, Big Boy Barry's yeah, um, yeah. manager or something like that as well. Yeah, and I know that because that was his first TV job, and I got him that job. Uh, David, we were—I um, mean, David and Simon were really good friends at, at university. Simon was in the same 
year as me. David was in the year below. And Simon was uh, just the most insanely naturally gifted kind of comedian that you would ever seen in your life. I did that with Simon and David. I, I started a thing, David Icke and the Orphans of Jesus. It was a comedy group and we would perform in uh, the Dome Cafe in Clifton and Bristol uh, for our fellow students. And I emceed it. David Walliams had a, he had an act with a, a guy you met, Jason Bradbury, who went on to do the Gadget Show. Yeah, we had him UK. on recently, actually. Yeah, great oh, did guy, you? Yeah. Yes, well, so, so Jason and David, had, uh, the Brothers Johnson, they were called. They were very funny. Jason was actually, I, I didn't really keep in touch with Jason after I left, but um, but back, he was an incredible physical actor into like mime and all that stuff. He really, he could do things. Jason Bradbury could do things with his body as a 19 year old <laughs> that would make your eyes water. Unfortunately, uh, Jason was also that guy that you have in every year uh, at a uh, university who plays the bongo drums. And J <laughs> he always had his bongo drums on him and that was really irritating. But yeah, so David and, and Jason were the uh, um, the brothers Johnson and, uh, and they were good. But Simon had this character. He was a lifeguard poet and he would get up on stage dressed as a lifeguard he had a whistle and everything and he would do this fantastic poetry and in the middle of poems he would stop and he'd blow his whistle and point to someone at the in the audience and go no bombing <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd go on a bit more and he'd start whistle no heavy petting just like all the stuff that was on the posters of swimming pools when we were kids and it was amazing and i i kind of organized it and emceed it and kept all the money and uh, and I was I was good. I was a decent MC. I was I was doing stand up at that time in different places, but I had to work hard at it. I had to I had to really write it well and then perform it. And I would see Simon and go, "This is just this is just." I mean, I don't want to say the word effortless because it's not effortless. You work at it, but he just had that extra level that some people have, where you're like, you simply cannot not be charismatic on stage. You cannot not be funny. It's in your very core. And so it's, uh, I mean, it's no surprise really that he has gone on to do what he has. He, you know, he's the finest kind of comic actor Britain has produced in the last 20, 20, 30 years. And, uh, and, a, and a really nice guy, so, as opposed to David Walliams, who, you know, I, I fell out with. Uh, Simon, I remember when I was doing XFM Scotland and Simon and Nick were promoting uh, it wasn't Sean, the Hot Fuzz, Hot Fuzz. Mm. And they came on my radio show as a guest. And I was I was really nervous because I hadn't seen Simon uh, since we left Bristol. And I'm like, oh, you know, he's, you know, the big movie shot now and I'm doing this wee radio show. And there was a bit of rivalry between us back then. You know, we'd both auditioned for the same plays at Bristol and everything and uh, and dated the sets, a couple of the, one of the same girls, actually. And not at the same time, in case. <laughs> Clear that up. you're thinking we're going to go lurid. Um, and, uh, and he came on. So I was a little bit nervous. And he not only was he amazing and nice and funny, but he actually stopped me at one point and he said, I just want to I just want to say to your listeners here that you were the first person amongst us to do stand-up comedy when we were at Bristol University. And seeing you do it inspired me to go into comedy myself. And I just thought, oh, you didn't have to say that, you know? And it was such an amazing little kind of bone that he threw me. Um and uh, so, yeah, no, absolutely lovely guy. Deserves everything. I was actually supposed to be, damn the coronavirus, I was supposed to be going over for Simon's, he had his 50th birthday party right. on February the 14th, and it was a big surprise party. So I got an invite from his wife, and uh, and it was, i tell you what was funny about that, though. This is great. You'll love this. So on, 
on the invite, it was at Soho Farmhouse. And there was a thing that said, please let us know if you plan to arrive by helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of people who mix with that. <laughs> well, that's it. You think, you know, Tom Cruise is obviously not turning up on an Intercity 125. <laughs> you know, it's like, so I thought, oh my God, that's because of people like, you know, like Tom Cruise and The Rock and people like that. And, and uh and I, it's fun enough, it was Johnny Finch, the Games Master producer, and I was saying to him at the time, oh, listen, I don't know if I, if I want to fly back for Simon's birthday because, you know, there'll be all these famous people there and there's only a couple of us from university that have been invited. And Johnny's like, no, no, not only do you have to go, but you have to sell everything you have just to arrive by helicopter. <laughs> but, uh, but then coronavirus took over and flights got cancelled. So uh, uh, so I never I never went, which was a shame. Well, you mentioned about David Williams there as well. I did read that you two had a fallout. I mean, what, what kind of happened there? Didn't, have you made up since? Or? Um, uh, the fallout. Okay, this is a short version of the story. Basically, again, this is one of the great things about Twitch is that, so I, I did this last week because people were asking for it. And it happened as a result of his appearance on a, a show that I was doing called Dom and Kirk's Night O' Plenty on the Paramount channel. And so I do this whole bit on Twitch where I bring in clips from the show and I just so, I show just how, how bad it was, a horrible thing for me to go through. Um, so basically, uh, so David was a really good friend of mine. When David first arrived in Bristol University, uh, no one liked him. Okay, he was a bit strange and he was a bit weird. We were in a production of Midsummer Night's Dream together. And I liked David. I was about the only person that did. I, I thought there was something really fascinating about this guy. And he was a massive um, comedy buff, right? Like a real student of comedy and, uh, and sitcoms and everything. And we would spend hours and hours talking about the craft of comedy. So I, I really liked him. And I said to everyone, listen, this guy's not bad. Give him a chance. And as a result, he became part of our kind of social uh, circle that we had and he i was going out with this girl in the family he was going out with this girl katie carmichael who later was twists in space and lucy barlow in coronation street like i say it was the most incredible time for people who went on to do great things so anyway we were great friends and then when i uh, left and when i got games master i was always trying to kind of help david get a leg up one of those things was helping him get games world so um it was 94 93 94 Something around about then. By this time, uh, Mavamwe was head of the Paramount Channel. I was doing the show with Kirk from Games Master, Dominic Kirk's Night of Plenty. And um, Mavamwe said, Can you have David and Matt Lucas on as guests? They've got this new show called um, Mash and Peas Spoofo Vision. And we had a rule for our show. The only guests we had, it was a bit like Games Master, were incredibly attractive females. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit of the show. We, we called it the Totty Slotty. Uh, that's when you could tell how 90s it was. It really was peak 90s. And I'm like, well, we normally just have, you know, women on. And my family's like, yeah, but this is David. He's your friend. You know, and I'm like, okay. Now, I'd met Matt Lucas before. And uh, um, I didn't get a good vibe from him. He was outside. He wasn't in our social group. And when I met him, he was very much the kind of guy that wanted to be center of attention, like, like you know, we all are. And he was outside our group. And I just thought, there's something about him. So that night, they came on our show live. And um, and I don't know why, but they'd obviously decided to uh, to destroy the show. And it was live TV, which is a really horrible kind of nerve-wracking thing to do because you cannot hide 
on live television. Live radio you can hide, and I've done that many times. If something goes wrong, nobody can see you. So there's lots of times on live radio where literally the studio has been crashing around me and I've kept talking while typing an email to an engineer. <laughs> that engineer will come in, will go between my legs and start soldering something, and all the time I can carry on. Live TV, you can't. So they did that thing where when you're asked a question, you just say, I don't know. And that's all they did to all the oh, questions. God. And it got it got worse and worse. And there, and I kept thinking, why, why are you doing this to me, David? And at no point could I stop and ask. But there was one point where we had the intro jingle to this uh, game we played called Dart in the Head. And during that jingle, I leaned over to David and Matt and I said, don't f*** this up. And then, so the, the, it was a game involving darts and they were throwing darts at my head. And I was so angry. By the end of the show, you can actually see this on the, uh, on the closing credits. As you know, I think it just stops before it on the version that's on YouTube. When the show happened, you could see it. I lunge for Matt Lucas over the end credits and I chase him off set. I caught up with him in the corridor. I had him by the throat and I was about to punch through his skull and the security guard at the Paramount Channel grabs my arm and I'm trying to punch through the security guard to Matt Lucas and I don't quite get there and the security guard pulls me off. Sorry, not in that way. <laughs> Sorry. Once, once a Games Master host, always a Games Master host. <laughs> and so um, I looked up and I, and I saw David was there watching and he looked at me and you could tell he felt bad and he went to speak and I said, don't say anything to me ever again. And that was it. And uh, last time I saw him, last time I spoke to him. And it's funny in terms of like making up with him. No, I haven't. But my mum, bless her. My mum is the, uh, my mum really should be uh, head of the United Nations. She's like, um, she's like a little Kofi Annan, <laughs> albeit in Newport Pagnell, Buckinghamshire. She, um, she's like, oh, you know, you should, um, you should, you should phone up David Williams. I read his book. He writes about that and he says he feels really bad about it. You should give him a, <laughs> you should give him a phone. My mum thinks that that's basically how like the world of media works. It's just that, yeah, I'll just pick up the phone and call uh, David Williams. So no, big fallout. That's the story. Have not made it up. Well, Games Master was a really groundbreaking show and uh, it was the first kind of British video game show and Jane Hoolan was behind it. And um, what was the story behind the inception of the show? Jane Hewland was a maker of trendy youth news magazine program type stuff at London Weekend Television, the, uh, the London independent TV franchise. And so because that was her job, she always had her finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist. Her son, Harry, started playing video games on his, uh, I guess it would have been the NES at the time. And, and she said, and funny, Jane was saying the same thing to me the other day because I still ask her for advice uh, about what to do with my career even now. And she said to me the other day, she goes, the greatest things you ever do in life come from love. And she said, I loved my son Harry so much. I wanted to be a better mum in, in whatever way my talents as a human being allowed me to. So I wanted to make a TV show just for him and his friends. And I saw them sitting around the NES, playing these games and talking and having a laugh. And I thought, I'll make a TV show about that that just captures that. 
And it's a beautiful, I get goosebumps just thinking. I mean, it's such a, it came from such a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. And so that's, that's how Games Master started in a, in a media world that is, that is so cold and cynical and calculating. This was one of the things that came from a rare place of just complete love. And it's just, um, it's unfortunate. It was hijacked by a guy who turned, turned it into knob gags for seven years. Really. <laughs> well, let's talk about your involvement then. I mean, you mentioned before on the spectrum, you're a big gamer. I mean, when you started Games Master, were you still into games? And what was kind of the audition oh. process of getting in there then? How did you get it? Uh, yeah, I was, uh, when I was at Bristol University, we, we had arcade games in the student union and I played a lot of arcade games. And I had, I was doing stand-up comedy and I auditioned for The Word on Channel 4 because they had what I think was the very first open search for a star on a TV show ever, which I, you think how many times they do. The Word was probably like The Bachelor. It was like the forerunner, that whole contest <laughs> of things like The Bachelor now. Yeah. So they, uh, I applied for that, and they had uh, 18,000 people applying, and I got to the last 12, and I think I, I wasn't cool enough. Basically, the word was a very cool thing, and I, you know, I wasn't that kind of cool a person. But they were based in Docklands, the company who did that, Planet Twenty Four, and that was, they were literally next door to Games Master's offices to Hewland International. And Jane knew them because she'd worked with them at London Weekend Television, and said, "Look, you've interviewed eighteen thousand people. Can you save us a lot of time? Was there anyone you thought would be good for this show?" And one of the guys there said, "Take a look at this Dominic Diamond. He might be right for it." So, so they got in touch and I was really pleased because I was so gutted. I really thought I was going to get the word and I was so gutted. But then I got this call. Do you want to come and audition for this show called Games Master? I'm like, yeah. So I went along to uh, this church and it was the, um, I can't remember if it was the same church we used. I think it was the same church we ended up using for season one. And there was uh, Adam Wood, the producer. Uh, there was uh, uh, Cameron, the director. And, uh, and a gentleman by the name of Dave Perry, who you may be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And he was the researcher of the first series of Games Master. And Dave Perry basically played this uh, this football game on the Game Boy while I commentated on it. And they filmed it. And that was the audition. And at the time, I was I was trying to make it as a stand-up comedian. And I, I, I wasn't very good. I was too young, right? You cannot be a stand-up comedian at 21 years old, especially like I did. I did, I did, I did political comedy, age 21, as a fresh-faced guy with little round glasses. I was, uh, I was temping in uh, assorted, ironically, in secretarial work in Milton Keynes at that time, where my parents lived, because my mum's dream of us learning word processing on the ZX Spectrum had finally come to fruition <laughs> for me all those years later, albeit on a different computer. So I was, uh, I was, I was uh, temping in a secretarial role for this horrible company in Milton Keynes. They treated me like absolute crap. I wasn't allowed to listen to headphones at the time. I had to just do this work, and it was so boring. And I got the call saying, You've got Games Master. So I packed up my stuff and I was walking out this office and the boss said, uh, Dominic, where are you going? Come back here. And I turned around and I said, no, I'm off to be on the telly. And I walked out. Oh, but that <laughs> felt good. <laughs> it felt absolutely fantastic. Well, did you expect the kind of golden joystick to become so iconic? And uh, what, why did it happen? Was there like a pressure to get big prizes? And I guess you've still probably got your golden joystick somewhere. Okay, let me uh, let me answer that in reverse order 
Uh, and again, and I'm sorry, and these are not just shameless plugs for the, the the Twitch show, but I swear to God, every day I get new followers and every day someone asks that question, have you got a Games Master Golden Joystick? I've got two, right? And I did this story again earlier on and I'll probably do it again next week because it's the thing that people want to know. I never got one during the filming of Games Master and I don't know why, um, but I, and I, I regretted it for years later, especially when I would see uh, Richard Herring and Stuart Lee on uh, Lee and Herring's Fist of Fun, where they smashed up the one that uh, Richard Herring won. And I now know apparently that was a stunt Golden Games Master joystick, and it wasn't the real one. Um, you could tell they were the BBC and they had big budgets. They could afford to make stunt Games Master Golden joysticks. But uh, I would see them smash it up and i go, no, I could have had one of those and I didn't. So I, I, I didn't have one, but now I've got two because this was only a few years ago in Calgary. And I... I Fallen in with a few British, there's a lot of British people in Canada, especially a lot of uh, Scottish people, especially in Calgary. And there's a friend of mine I met and we, it was Canada Day and we decided to have a big FIFA tournament in my flat. And his wife is one of those women who like makes stuff out of like anything. And she turns up and she's made a replica Games Master Golden Joystick as the prize for this FIFA tournament. And it's even got season eight on it as well, because this was like the season that never happened. So she gave me that, which was remarkable. And then a week later, some guy who I only remember as Richard, sadly, uh, got in touch through the radio station I was working for, Jack FM Calgary, got in touch through their Facebook page randomly and said, I make replica stuff. I was a big fan of Games Master. Can I make you a replica golden Games Master joystick? And I said, um, yeah. And so he did, and he sent it out to me, and it's an exact kind of quick shot two replica. So I have two, but I only got them once I moved to Canada, <laughs> which was a little bit strange. Um, but in terms of like the, the success of the show um, and why it was a success, I I think a lot of it was luck. You know, we came in there just when games were taken off, but I think it was a success because, as opposed to like you know maybe other attempts at video games programming, we were an entertainment show about video games. We were not a video game show. And there's a crucial difference. Everything we did on Games Master went through the filter of is this entertaining to watch and to experience? And I think that that's why, while, you know, yes, we had a lot of kids watching it, we had a lot of parents as well because they got that this was working on a different level of entertainment. And yes, I think that's that's where the knob gags kind of came into it as well, really. Uh, even though that wasn't a kind of cynically planned thing, that was just literally the way that I wrote that first series. It just kind of happened like that. I kind of sat down with a blank sheet of paper and I think I thought, right, what's 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 funny? Oh, waggling your joystick. And that was it. From then, that just seemed to be the direction to go. Well, were you given like a free reign on those innuendos? And was there any like, did it go through kind of a filter? Was there any, they said, oh no, Dominic, you can't do that one. It's too far or? Uh, no, I was never, ever, ever censored on Games Master. I was allowed to write every word that I that I said and uh, the only other person that was in any way involved in the scripts was uh, Johnny Finch, the producer, because he is the smartest, most well-read person uh, I've ever known. That's the other ironic thing is that, so Johnny Finch, the producer of Games Master, <laughs> this huge show about technology, literally has a has a um, a house in London full of leather-backed first editions of the greatest works of literature. He's like, he, he reads ancient Anglo-Saxon. Okay, it's quite... And so sometimes I would literally say to him, Johnny, I'm stuck in a script. Can you give me 
um, a line of poetry by a metaphysical poet that has the word cock in it. And Johnny would say, yes, here's one, John Donne. So, uh, so yeah, and I think that um, success allows you to get away with a lot more. And if you know if it if it's if it's not broken, don't fix it. And Channel Four is a great example because Channel Four never pressured us either. And what was weird was that the reason that Channel Four didn't is Channel Four were completely clueless about Games Master. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it at all. The show was commissioned by Channel Four Sports Department, um, which is weird. And they literally. As long as we got the ratings, then that was it. They, you know, they, they weren't really bothered, and rightly so. I mean, you know, they, they, they'd be, oh, now and again, they'd maybe say, oh, you know, you, we noticed that you want to set this next season in heaven. Are you sure that's going to be okay? And we would say, maybe it will be, maybe it won't be. Let's see if ITV want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, you know, but that said, I mean, they, they, they gave us a massive free reign. I mean, even to the extent that, um, of forgetting to um, like we we told them that we weren't doing a series seven, and they they didn't even read the email and literally forgot and phoned us up about eight weeks before the due date of season seven to say where's the show, no and we're like no no we told you we we're not making one, so that's how season seven was uh, was a little bit rushed. <laughs> well, how did the kind of format of the challenges come around and? How did Patrick Moore get involved? And what did he think of the programme as well? Uh, Patrick Moore was the only person uh, more clueless about the programme than Channel 4's commission <laughs> department. Um, uh, Patrick was, was apparently just an absolute professional's professional. He would turn up to the little green screen studio. He would get handed uh, this uh, script. He would understand very little of it but he would knock it out in one take. He was just, I just got it. He just got the nuances and everything like that. And, uh, and yeah, I, I don't know who had this idea. I know that there was other people considered at the time, or at least we, we had this list of, of people we would get into be Games Master if Patrick died, because that was always a kind of possibility. <laughs> Although, ironically, given what I got up to in the nineties was probably more chance of me dying than Patrick <laughs> at that point. But yeah, so we had uh, other people, mostly Dr. Who's. It was basically, you know, like uh, Tom Pertwee, uh, um, sorry, uh, John Pertwee, Tom Baker, they were the other ones, but uh, no, Patrick was, was absolutely fantastic. And the, the only kind of sad thing is, is that I only met him once in all that time. And I, actually, maybe it's not sad. Maybe this is perfect. I met him on the very, very last day that either of us filmed anything on Games Master. This was after all the stuff had been done, the main set and the set had been stripped. This was the little extra stuff that we do in little studios. So we'd record Patrick in a little separate green screen studio. And I would go along to that same studio to record voiceovers for things like, you know, the review sections and the features. And I remember turning up and Patrick Moore was literally leaving as I was entering if I'd been five minutes later, I would never have met him. And he didn't even recognize me. He kind of looked at me. <laughs> hello, hello, yeah. hello, young man. And I'm like, uh, Patrick, Dominic. He he hello. And he starts looking a bit nervous. Who's this giant hairy Scotsman? It's been Dominic Diamond from Games Master. And then he's like, oh, well, I never. Hello. And, um, and we talked about cricket for like about 30 minutes and it was a wonderful conversation that we had and then that's it Patrick went up the street 
and I uh, went into the studio and that was the one and only time that I met him. But I like, I think that was a really nice little kind of coda to the show as a whole. Well, I mean, talking about the form of the challenges as well, I mean, when I was a kid, that's, you know, it's what we all did as kids, isn't it? Back then, before the days of the internet, we sat down and we played games with our friends on the couch, which Games Master just seemed like a bigger version of that. And obviously, you had all these kids on set as well, I mean, who all seemed really hyper and everything. I mean, were they ever hard to control at all? No, I don't. I don't think they were. I have to say that the um, uh, I, uh, I I suffered and and still do. I, I suffer from a lot of social anxiety with kind of crowds of people. So I, I never liked to kind of hang out on the set too much unless I was actually filming because I got really self conscious. So uh, when all the child wrangling—I don't know if we can even use that phrase these days—but <laughs> when the child wrangling went on, I would be safely ensconced in my my small um uh porta cabin honing honing the next batch of knob gags i i definitely left the child wrangling in fact can i i left the child wrangling to other people i at no point did i attempt to wrangle any children on the set of games <laughs> i think that's the best way to to say that but i think they got i mean i don't know i think you know they got given you know sandwiches and and beer and amphetamines and stuff like that, probably. <laughs> were there any kind of real nightmare guests then? Uh, most of the guests were, were lovely. 99.9% of the guests were absolutely brilliant. What I can say is um, Mr. Motivator smiles more on camera than off camera. Let's just leave that there. And um, also, uh, Vinnie Jones. Vinnie Jones is a is a, a very interesting character because I think Vinnie's the only footballer that appeared more than once on Games Master. And the reason is footballers were the worst part of Games Master. They were the biggest names to get on, but they were the most unreliable and they were the most expensive. Like most celebrities on Games Master would do it for like a couple of hundred quid. The footballers all wanted like a thousand pounds. And then they would just pull out on the day. But we knew that Vinnie Jones would do anything for money. When you phoned up Vinnie Jones back then, I swear he answered the phone, how much? (laughs) (laughs) That was his first two words. So we knew that literally if we got a call on the day to say that such and such had pulled out, we could phone Vinnie Jones and he'd be there in an hour once we negotiated an outlandish fee that Vinnie Jones probably got paid more than every other Games Master guest's fee in total wow. for his appearances. So, But that doesn't mean he's a bad guy. That just means he, he worked the system really, really well. But no, they, they were the only two. Most uh, It was a bit awkward. But sometimes it was awkward because if I had, because sports stars were always interesting because I was doing a, 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 a show on Radio 5 at the time called Sports Call and I was doing 606. And so they had big audiences, especially among sports stars themselves. So now and again, I'd think, oh, this person's coming on. Did I make a gag at their expense on the radio? Stephen Hendry was a, was a good example. Stephen Hendry, the snooker player, turns up and I'm like, hey, hi, Steve. How did you do? Nice to meet you. He's like, you're the guy that was slagging off my wife. Oh, God. And I'm like, oh, what? And then I remembered his wife was called Mandy Tart before she, <laughs> before she married him. And I did a whole thing about what a tart she was on Radio 5. And he looked at me and he had a face. He's like, ah, you thought you were smart, eh? I thought you were smart, eh, taking the piss out of my wife. And I'm God. like, 
Oh, geez. And then he just clapped my shoulder and smiled. Like, I'm only kidding. So it was all right. So, but apart from that, no, the celebrities on Games Master were, they were all fantastic. I have great memories of, of a lot of them. I think because it was, it was a really fun thing for them to do. It was unlike any other thing you'd be asked to do as part of the celebrity circuit, you know? I read that Robbie, Robbie Williams has still got his golden joystick. I heard a while back. Does he? Yeah, that's what I oh, so he, he won one, that, didn't he? That, that's when he did. He won on the uh, Twin Take That, played Super Bomberman. Yeah. And and that was good because he was, I mean, I'm pleased that he went on to become the biggest kind of star. Well, I'm going to say biggest star musically, but I suppose Gary Barlow's made a made a few quid. But you know, he's the best performer, put it that way, because it was even obvious on that day meeting them that Robbie Williams was the star of that band. He was just so effervescent and engaging. Um, in fact, there was a really awkward uh, moment. Actually, this was a conversation with Dave Perry uh, in the porta cabin toilets. I'm literally in there. I'm having a pee beside Dave Perry. And Dave Perry said to me, who was your favorite out of all of Take That? And I said, uh, I said, Ken. And he went, <laughs> what? I said, I said, they're all called Ken, aren't they? And then the toilet flushed from the sit-down part and Gary Barlow walked out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, hi, hi, Gary. Um, but, uh, but I'll tell you what's cool about Robbie Williams is quick story about him and what a great guy he is. Uh, a few, a few a couple of years later, I was going out with uh, a, a police sergeant called uh, Paula from Liverpool, who I met uh, in Russia's testimonial, and we started dating. And she was she was very demanding, right? She was she was fantastic. She was very funny. She was a scouser, and they're brilliant. But she was quite quite a demanding person to go out with. And I was going to meet her at uh, Kings Cross train station when she was coming in from the train, and I was late for her. And she gets off the train uh, and I'm not there. So she's waiting and waiting and waiting. By the time I turn up, she's got a face like thunder. She's like, you know, how dare you be late and everything. I've come all the way down from Liverpool and blah, blah, blah. And she's really angry. And then I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and there's Robbie Williams and he's got his hood up. So no one recognizes him. And he's like, all right, Dominic, how are you doing? <laughs> like, hey, Robbie. How are you, pal? He's like, how's things going? I said, I said, well, to be honest, Robbie, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a bit of a nightmare. This is my girlfriend, Paula. Oh, hi, how are you doing, Paula? I said, yeah, she just got off the train and uh, and I was a bit late because of all the traffic and she's furious. And Robbie Williams said, oh, yeah, I was stuck in that traffic too. And it completely got me out of the doghouse. <laughs> and I don't know if he was or if Robbie Williams spent his, his whole life at that time walking around uh, trying to help out men who have had arguments with their girlfriends as some kind of relationship version of Batman. But uh, it, was a, it, it was a really lovely thing for him to do. And uh, and yeah, he was he was a fantastic guy, yeah. So how much of the gaming on the show was kind of edited for TV? Because, I mean, we all saw times when, you know, like a, a brother might have his little sister absolutely thrash him at one of the games. Was it ever kind of redone a few times to kind of fit the narrative? I, I think that is a specific case you are referring to. I think there is one guy who pops up on the internet every couple of years who claims his that they had to replay the game so his sister beat him and he's still really angry about <laughs> it. Um, so I, um, listen, like I say, it was an entertainment show about video games. So uh, there, there were times when, for example, if we got someone on to do a challenge and they completely screwed it up within eight seconds, that's obviously going to make rubbish TV. And so, you know, yes, I'm sure there was times we let them get another go. But that, that really didn't happen as often as you would think. And the reason is, 
we we didn't just throw this stuff together willy nilly. the The biggest part of Games Master behind the scenes was literally months spent, a bunch of us sitting playing these games. Oh, what a tough life! Um, <laughs> trying to work out challenges, and then someone would come up with a challenge, and then we'd all try it. And again, and we'd say, is that going to be entertaining? Is that going to be feasible? Are they going to do it? Where can it go wrong? We really quality controlled the bejesus out of that stuff. So there was very, very few times when it didn't work out. So there was very few times that we had to, you know, to redo stuff. Although I will say that the only thing I will admit to that maybe, quite possibly, Yuri Geller was not actually controlling that game with the power of his mind alone, <laughs> right? I, I hate to I hate to destroy people's preconceptions of the greatest, you know, magician of our era. But uh, but yeah, may, maybe that one was uh, not quite as it seemed. Well, there was lots of kind of hype of titles and technology at the time. And uh, did you see any massive kind of flops where everybody was really excited about it and when it came out, it just completely went dead? The, well, the 3DO, I remember, uh, we all thought that was going to be absolutely kind of the next great thing in, in full TV quality, immersive technology. Actually, because I think, think they were the same time, there was the 3DO and the Philips CDI. Yeah. And they were the first two machines that were going to be, yep, you're going to be able to take part in immersive movies. That was the whole big thing. The uh, I think there's still a lot of people out there who've got a soft spot for the 3DO. Like, you know, if you have like a real hipster, so just like, oh, yeah, no, the 3DO was brilliant. No, it wasn't. It was pish. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the Philips CDI was probably the worst one. And I feel really bad because the Philips CDI, I pushed for the Philips CDI personally to be on Games Master. I think that was a... I think it was the tennis game. That was probably Annabelle Croft that probably played that. And I really pushed for it because I think I had, I may have just been paid a lot of money to write articles for the, the only Philips CDI magazine at the time. Right. I think. <laughs> so I, th I think it may have been in my interest to, to give Philips CDI a little nudge. But yeah, I don't think there's many people uh, searching for Philips CDIs on there. Uh, on eBay these days. I think I got one for 20 quid on eBay. A few oh, did ago. you? Yeah. <laughs> it was listed as a Philips CD player on. I recognize that. Fantastic. Can't say I use it much. Do, do, you guys, do you guys agree? I mean, I mean, oh, have I got it wrong? No, absolutely. It was, it was, I remember it being so hyped as well, wasn't it? It's going to be the next, it's going to replace your video recorder then. Yeah, it just fell yeah. on its bum, didn't it? Well, how, how did Channel 4 kind of react to the biblical themes that were uh, happening with Games Master? You know, they had the heaven they had hell redemption and what was the kind of plan for series seven the um so uh, yeah channel four didn't channel four didn't care the show was a success they, they knew that what was great about it was not only was the show a success for channel four but it was one that they didn't have to steer us in any way you know the great series that we never planned to do series seven I can't even remember what, because that was quite an ambitious setting nonetheless. I mean, to actually be a desert island for the last series, complete with an artificial um, sea in a studio. was um, So it, the, the way it worked for every series was myself, apart from series one and series two, there's basically, there's, there's two eras of Games Master, the season one and season two, uh, which was um, uh, Cameron McAllister, director, and Adam Wood, the producer. And those were great series. They were very 
I was going to say very conventional, but no, they weren't because season two was set on an oil rig and I was dressed as a red coat. So that was random. But I think that it was, um, it was still kind of, it was still sticking to the rails a bit. And then you have got the, the, the gap of season three with Dexter Fletcher. And then when I came back and I had a lot more control over the show. And after that was, was kind of my, my preferred era of Games Master. And during that time, uh, for every season, myself, Johnny Finch, the producer, um, uh, Steve Wright, the director, and and Richard Wilcox, the senior researcher, and we would spend a week meeting up every evening in a very trendy pubs in Notting Hill and Labrick Grove, and we'd get absolutely hammered drunk and try to come up with the most ridiculously outlandish settings that we could. That we thought there's no way they'll ever go for that, and that's how heaven came about. That's how hell came about. Uh, underwater as well. So we would do that. We'd come up with these ideas and we would, at the end of the week, would send them all off to Jane Hewland and she'd go, great, 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 great. How much drugs are you on? Great, 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 great. And to be honest, most of them, Jane, you know, was like, yep, this is great because she was just the most fantastic, wonderful kind of liberal boss that you could ever have. So yeah, that's basically what happened with Series 7 and, and we said, yep, yeah, it's the last one. Let's have it on a desert island. And I think it's because we were we were on the, we were underwater for the series before that for series six. So we thought, how can we? Because there was a through line. Because there was heaven, which was me coming back, which was you know my kind of redemption. And then I fell from heaven at the end of that to hell. And then um, I don't know, I can't remember how we got from hell to underwater. Anyway, <laughs> but then underwater there was a I don't know why, but there was a reason that we got then obviously from underwater to the desert island. You know, speaking about the look of the show, those earlier series, we have to talk about the pink jacket. Was that a choice of yours then? And did you enjoy wearing it? I absolutely hated uh, the jacket from uh, from series two more than anything I've ever hated in my life as a broadcaster. I kind of understood the idea. Yes, I'm supposed to be a red coat, but it was, you know, I was like, you know, I was what, 22 at the time, very self-conscious, had been propelled to this ridiculous level of uh, of fame that I, I wasn't comfortable with at all uh, as a you know in terms of mental health so the the least I wanted to do was to look okay and I just felt I looked like a little bit of a joke and that's why after that series it was in my contract that I had final say over what I wore and, and was in every other thing I've done since. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I wasn't I wasn't a fan of that. You haven't got any, any cupboard to this day then, though? No? I, I haven't got it because they they burnt the bloody thing um, at the start of season three right. when Dexter Fletcher took over. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember tuning into that, even though I'd kind of fallen out with them, and I remember tuning into that first episode just to see how it was going to be. And the first thing I saw was Dexter Fletcher, Dexter Fletcher holding up the old red jacket from series two going, this guy's burnt out. And I'm like, there was no need to absolutely hammer me. And I watched that. And I remember thinking, okay, when the season three is a disaster, which it will be, when they ask me back for season four, which they will, I'm adding a zero hmm. onto my fee. And I did. What what happened there then? Because uh, the rumor was that you kind of left over the McDonald's sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, that was it. I was um, I was quite uh, politically opposed to McDonald's at the time. They were doing certain practices, and so it wasn't a company that I wanted to ally myself with. I just I don't have a problem with them now um, at all. <laughs> I remember it's funny actually because you know we 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 get less politically militant as we get older anyway, and so I remember. Uh, my McDonald's ban happened for many, many years. It was uh, 
second year in Canada and I'd, uh, I was working in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I had to do this big, long drive, an hour's drive. I lived on the South Shore and I had to drive up an hour every day and an hour back. And I needed, so I needed Wi-Fi for some reason. And this just shows what, how clever it was that certainly in Canada, McDonald's was the first fast food place that had free Wi-Fi. And I needed a place. And I'm like, oh, no, McDonald's is the only place. I'm going to have to stop at McDonald's that I've not been in for 20 years. And I walked in to use the Wi-Fi. And I smell a Big Mac in front I was, you're right, I still live there now. I was throwing small children out the way to get to the front of that queue. And it was the greatest thing I've ever put in my mouth in my entire life. Um, but yes, at the time, yes, it was, uh, it was McDonald's. And then when I came back for season four, uh, yes, pedant, pedants will still point out, that uh, McDonald's still sponsored the opening titles, but there was a cast iron agreement. That was part of their two-year deal. And so there was a cast iron agreement that uh, that was it. But what did you think of the kind of the rival show on the other side then? Bad Influence obviously was on ITV at the same time. Did you kind of see them as a rival and did you watch them? I was unbelievably horrible about Bad Influence when it came. I mean, really horribly nasty about them. And and it was a shame because Violet and Andy were both absolutely lovely people. I kind of got to meet them, you know, in later days. I mean, it wasn't a threat because the the show was, you know, it was a kids it, it was a kids show. Yeah. Yes, our show was a show that was watched by kids, but theirs was deliberately aimed, you know, as a as a, I think it was it was actually part of the children's ITV kind of strand anyway. But it's like. You know, we were Games Master. We felt we were the rebels. We were Channel 4. And here was this big behemoth ITV coming. And we thought, oh, no, they're going to they're gonna sweep us away with their big money budgets. And I was like, don't you worry. I will single-handedly destroy them. And so I made it my mission to be horrifically nasty about them every chance I got. And uh, this, show, this show was okay. I mean, that Nam Rude character was, was a bit irritating. But, um, you know, some things were good. I mean, I took that. The uh, the thing they did at the end when they had the, the hints and cheats and tips going really fast over the credits so you could record it. The data blast, that was incredibly innovative because, you know, let's be honest, as much as we tried to uh, put as much humour as we could, the consultations on a Games Master was the worst thing about the whole show. I mean, it was it was embarrassing. It was terrible. Um, you know, now and again, we'd have jokes like some chicken being beamed up instead to ask a question. <laughs> and Patrick Moore did a, a great job. But that was the one part of the show that every year I'm like, can we drop it? Can we drop it? And then eventually we did in, in later series. So I think the Data Blast was a much better way of doing tips and cheats than we did. I mean, you think it, 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 it's ridiculous to think that you would tune into Games Master in the vain hope that one of the three tips you would get on a game <laughs> would be that game you were playing for that one particular bit you were stuck on. I mean, it was it was absolutely pointless when you think Quite a long it. shot. Yeah, it was. Well, who was the funniest kind of presenter to work with? Because I absolutely love the Gore special. And uh, Derek Lynch's commentary on there was absolutely hilarious. He would he'd never be able to keep up with the fighting. <laughs> Derek Lynch was one of the greatest gifts that the TV gods ever bestowed upon Games Master. He was like that off camera. He just would turn up, massive smile. Derek was great as well because he just he would laugh at everything I said. I could read the back of a crisp bag, and Derek Lynch <laughs> would be in stitches. And, um, so he was absolutely fantastic. He was an absolute joy to have on. Now, again, the, you know, 
they were all fantastic. They, you know, Rick Henderson was a great guy, and you know, was it was a good friend. And even in the the first couple of seasons, to have people like Julian Rignall and Neil West, I think were really important to give us that credibility with the gaming audience out there. Because obviously, I wasn't known as a gamer. And again, I think this was very clever of the producers to, to think about that and get the get the kind of gaming magazines on board by giving them, you know, their bit of TV fame as well. And uh, and someone asked me the other day, actually, on the Twitch show, what was Jazz Original like? And he was amazing. I later became really good friends with him. He moved to California. And I know the image of him with that mullet, because he still had the mullet then, walking around in California, <laughs> around Los Angeles, was fantastic. But no, I would see him a lot when we went out. Uh, we filmed a lot of stuff in California for Games Master, and I'd always pop in and see Julian. And uh, and yeah, he was a really, really good guy. But the best uh, for me, and, I, and this is selfish for me, because he, he was my best mate in real life, was Kirk, uh, Kirk Ewing. He was also the only commentator that didn't write in any way. I wasn't connected with a video games company. I think he just started working for one at the time, Viz. Um, and uh, but but Kurt was basically on because he was my mate and he was funny and he loved games. So it was it was absolutely fantastic working with Kirk. He just uh, he was very surreal and brilliant. And of course, that's why he was the he was the co-commentator there when I married Wakefield. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> he was the he was the vicar. That's right. He was dressed. As, he married Wakefield and I. And also, uh, Kirk was one of the. Um, yeah, Kirk was on the show. It was Kirk and Rick were on the show where we all cross dressed. It was the women's special, and we were all in dresses. And so they were the only two people who could do that. Uh, and that was also yeah, because that was the show that Zoe Ball came on. And Zoe Ball was probably my favorite ever games master guest because i i i'd done a couple of things with zoe I'd, I'd been on the big breakfast i actually auditioned for the big breakfast to be a presenter on it with zoe and i didn't get it we really clicked it was a real shame i really wanted that show but zoe was lovely and she she really got she got games master i knew she was funny i knew she was a bit naughty and she played the uh, the motorbike game and i remember asking her about riding pillion and she said oh yeah you know me i love it up the back <laughs> and i just single greatest answer from a, a guest of games master ever and she just got it and she was uh, she was absolutely amazing well dave perry's spoken out in recent years saying that you know your relationship went a bit sour as, as the show kind of went on obviously culminating in that infamous super mario 64 moment where you know to this day he reckons that you stitched him up what's kind of your side on that then um I, I, ironically kirk kirk won that yes. actually <laughs> kirk was the one that won that thing um listen i there's two parts. There's two parts to the whole Dave Perry thing. There is, and again, this is similar to the bad influence thing. There is what happened on the show, and there's the way that I treated Dave subsequently. And uh, what happened on the show was Dave tried to cheat, and that's the fact. That's absolute. 100% fact. Dave Perry asked Johnny Finch if he could get the questions for some part of the commentator challenge because he didn't want to look bad because he was the game's animal. And Johnny, and we nearly fell out. It was the only time Johnny Finch and I ever fell out. Johnny Finch gave him the questions. Johnny told me he gave him the questions and I hit the roof. And I said, no way, you are not you are not messing with the integrity of the show like this. Did you not see how we had Yuri Geller controlling that <laughs> game with his mind? 
this is a show that lives or dies on its credibility. So uh, they changed the round. Dave spat the dummy out a little bit. And then, um, you know, he tried to, I, it wasn't that he tried to cheat on that Super Mario challenge. He just, he tried to, I thought it was quite clever what he tried to do. It was all about, by that stage, how long could you last on that slide? And he just tried to go really slowly, which is quite smart and admirable, but he he pulled back too much, flipped on his stomach, fell off. And the rest is history. <laughs> um, and and I think it's, yeah, he tried to cheat and he tried to mess with the show. And, uh, and I didn't want people messing with my show. I thought that was bad. But... Uh, I said some really horrible, nasty things about Dave Perry following that. Uh, one in particular with um, Edge magazine that makes me, oh my God, it makes me cringe to this day. And I would say something like that about another human being because, listen, yes, Dave tried to cheat, but he was trying to protect his brand. And it was a brand and he was making money and it was a clever brand and he loved video games. His love for video games is not in any question. So credibility was important to him. And I don't think he was the first or the last celebrity to try and do something a little bit dodgy to protect the brand. So well, as I sit here now, 50 years old, a respectable pillar of the Canadian community <laughs> and, um, uh, and uh, senior figure in broadcasting with three children. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, these days I'm not bothered at all if he wanted to. You know, if he'd wanted to kind of, you know, fiddle it a bit to protect his brand integrity, I don't have a problem with that at all. I have no ill feelings towards him. Well, did you attend any kind of launches or huge industry events or parties uh, back then? You must have uh, kind of got a lot of invites. Are you kidding? That's all I did. That's, that was my entire life at that time. But it's funny, and I, I have a... I say this all the time, and I say this on on the radio in Canada a lot, that um, there's this person called 90s Dominic who is very different than the Dominic of today. And uh, unfortunately, 90s Dominic partied a lot and did a lot of things he really shouldn't have. And as a result, the 90s are, are genuinely are a blur. I kind of um, I, I get um, vivid memories stick out like icebergs in the Atlantic now and again, um, but then they disappear back underneath the ocean. So I actually... I, I, when I knew I was coming on here, I emailed one of my best friends in the industry, Daniel Wujia, a.k.a. Woody, who is the greatest PR in the history of video games. Oh, yeah, I've been chatting to her. She's, she's amazing. Right, yeah, Woody was just, Woody looked after me so much. She was just adorable. And uh, she was at, uh, she was she worked at Virgin and then she went on to have her own agency. She's now, I think, Outra Outrageous PR is her company now. And so I emailed her and I said, listen, I said, I'm doing this interview with the Retro Hour guys. I said, and I think they're going to ask me about like game launches and stuff like that in the 90s. Uh, can you remind me which ones I did, <laughs> which ones I went to? And, and I swear, okay, that this is this is the exact answer that, uh, that, that Woody gave me. And I'm going to remove one word because it mentions a particular company. And I don't think they'd want people to know that this was what happened at one of their launches. So she says, there were loads of parties you attended. Uh, cool spot in LA where we drove around with a giant cool spot drunk. Uh, Earthworm Jim with Tommy Tallarico and Dave Perry. Sony party where Michael Jackson asked you to get off the coin up so, coin up so he could play and you made him wait. Uh, <laughs> um, all the CES... Shows in Las Vegas where you were staying in the same hotel as the porn award shows people. And there was a girl in the lift chained up with a full mask. There was that football match we did for the Virgin 
uh, ad campaign, Dwarfing the Opposition, where you played football against dwarfs. And then there was the blank party with the Take That tribute band and bowls of cocaine on the bar. So that's I'm not mentioned in that particular uh, company. The one, I know what we... Because they are, I mean, genuine, genuinely blurred. There was lots of great stuff. There was a massive things. You'd always be going go-karting for something. Even if the video game had nothing to do with go-karts, there'd be a go-kart party every single week to do with the video games industry. There would be, a, there was a murder mystery night for another one and it was fantastic. I remember there was one party, I kind of think it was Konami for some reason, and they had a massive party and the bootleg Beatles were playing who are probably the greatest cover band in the history of cover bands. And I remember that one because it was the night, sadly, and I, and I do deeply regret this. I mean, I say it was a right laugh in the 90s, but it was the night I tried not just cocaine, uh, but also amphetamines for the first time, both of them in the same night. And as a result, I had an enormous argument with Mark Lamar where that night, uh, I can't remember what it was about. It was something to do with the word because I was a bit jealous because he ended up presenting on the word and I didn't. And I saw a huge argument with Mark Lamar, nearly had a fist fight. And that argument, we carried on a year later uh, backstage at a Supergrass concert in San Francisco. (laughs) 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 The the 90s, they were amazing. I mean, you know, Games and Master charted such an exciting time in gaming. You think, you know, when he started that, the, the Super Nintendo had just come out on the Mega Drive. And then by the end, I mean, we're into like the N64 and the PlayStation kind of era. Why did the show end then when it did? Did you just kind of feel like its time was up? We, could, we couldn't think of any other ideas. Um, we were not happy that we got punted to an earlier time slot when because uh, we always went out at 6.30. Then Channel 4 made that decision to make us the warm-up for Hollyoaks and moved us to 6, which did affect the ratings a little bit, um, which was a bit annoying. And I think after we did the Gore special, we were like, we only kind of, the next direction to take this is an adult version of the show, a late night Games Master. And Channel 4 said they weren't interested in it. And that was the only way that we were wanted to take it forward. And so so that was it. We just, uh, we ended it then. And um, and I don't, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's good because we never got the chance to screw it up. You know, it is genuinely, it seems to me anyway, something that people hold in extremely fond regard. And there's not many TV shows that that happens to. It's like I just I just watched uh, the the uh, the last show of Homeland. And I'm not trying to compare Games Master to the golden age of TV drama. But uh, you get things like, you know, The Sopranos ending or Homeland ending. And people bitch like hell about it. Oh, that was a terrible ending. Oh, my God, that jumped the shark. Games Master never jumped the shark so i think that was really good that we finished it when we did but at the same time and i say i say this to johnny finch every time i speak to him the money that we would be making from a games master in the 2010s we would have croesus like riches the amount of followers we'd have on like you we'd break youtube yeah. we'd break twitch <laughs> we'd break all these things i would literally be sitting on piles of money I, I wouldn't have a house big enough for all that money so yeah from a cynical money point of view then uh yeah i wish we never ended it but from the fact that you can genuinely look back or at least i can look back and go i am i am proud of almost every single moment 
of that show. The only exception being the uh, the the fake celebrity show that we did with Robocop and John Major, yeah. the celebrity impersonators. <laughs> that really that was terrible. That was the the only low point in Games Master. That was shocking. I mean, do you think there's a market for like gaming TV these days? Because there isn't really much of it anymore, is there? Uh, well, no. I, I mean, apparently there's none. Uh, and it's funny because on the Twitch channel yesterday, I did my first ever Twitch raid. Um, which is a, a bizarre thing you do at the end of your show. You get all your viewers to go to someone else's and invade. And apparently, that's a, and it, apparently, it comes from the greatest emotives. You want to try, you try and get a channel that's got slightly less viewers than you, so it boosts them for a bit. And I think that's great. That's a, that's a really good way to do it. Um, but I was a bit worried because in case people were going to be like nasty, but they weren't. And anyway, but I raided the BBC, BBC level. 23 i think it was called or something someone recommended we read that and um and it was a shame there was just this guy sitting playing uh one game on his own and he had about five people watching this is the bbc probably getting paid a fortune for that <laughs> and and he was saying how um there's no video game shows on the tv because we were talking about i was, he was talking to me about games master and he said that they always say at the bbc oh we need to come up with this the next great idea to hook in the young demographic, and he keeps saying, duh, video games. And they're like, no, we can't have video games. And he's like, but this is, you know, there's a guy called Ninja. on. He's not even on telly. And he made $20 million just from playing video games alone last year. People watching it on Mixer. So I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, TV bosses are funny. They're all, they're not very smart. They're, they're all very kind of conservative. They don't like, nobody likes to take risks. In the media at all you know and, and it's the same everywhere I've, I've noticed that in you know canadian radio as well is that um nobody likes to take risks and that, i think that's why things like twitch and and mixer and all that stuff and podcasting it's just so much more exciting than conventional shows now because you are your own boss you can do what you like and the, the only boss you have is uh, you've got two bosses creativity and your imagination and they're the best bosses you can ever have when you want to make anything if you look at stuff like esports nowadays that really is kind of two people sitting there playing a computer game like they would be in Games Master. The only difference is uh, kids aren't in cages anymore. (laughs) 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 What do you think about that? Would you ever go back into commentary for gaming or or enter the esports area? Well, it's funny because people have asked me this many times over the years and I I was like, I wasn't that interested in it, but my limited viewing of esports, it seemed to be uh, a, a a thing that was devoid of humor or personality. It was just people taking it very seriously and understandably because it's, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars at stake for these people. So you don't really want to be making knob gags with them before they play, I guess, because they're a bit nervous. But I, I you know, I, they didn't seem any wit. It was just a lot of shouting. And so I, I didn't really think it was a place for me. But that said, I recently uh, dipped my toe in the esports waters out here in Canada. And it came about totally randomly that we have this thing that just started, which is the uh, the CPL, the Canadian Premier League. And the manager of our local club that just started, uh, Calgary Cavalry, is a, is a British guy, okay, as a scouser called Tommy Wheeldon Jr. And he was a massive Games Master fan. So he heard me on the radio over here and he got in touch and uh, and I start. I went to all the games in them because I love football. And they were a good team. He's a great coach. He's a future England manager. I'm telling you that now. And so they launched the ECPL, which was their attempt to to uh, get um, to hold tournaments in every major Canadian city that has a CPL football team. 
get two winners and they go to Toronto for the final. So Tommy's like, Dominic, will you please listen, come and do, come and MC this esports tournament. And I said, of course, it's my local club. I'll do it. You know, I said, but you do realize that these will just be all kind of like kids who'll be very confused. And he's like, no, it'll be great. So I went along and there's all these kids looking at me. Who's this? Who's this kind of old, you know, hairy, bald Scottish guy? What the hell is he doing? And I said, oh, I said, I'm Dominic Diamond. You've heard me on the radio. And they're like, oh, yeah. But again, what have you got to do with video games? And I said, listen, kids, I friggin invented video games. Without me, you wouldn't have any video games. <laughs> spoiled little bastards uh, and i said i said i i said and actually i was one of the first people in the uk to play fifa and because of games master we were invited out to electronic arts out in slough and i had to explain to these canadian kids what slough was good luck with that and um, and i said we were shown this game and uh we said, oh, come and see this it's going to be amazing and it had that 3d isometric view and we were so excited because it was the first time you get a four players playing a, a football game at the same time and you could just see these canadian kids light up eyes light up and it was like instant credibility so i did it that day and again i did it in the dominic diamond way and the guys who were organizing it were like oh my god this is the way we have to take this tournament Okay, can you be in Edmonton next week and we'll pay you this? And can you be in Toronto for the grand finals? And I came back to, and I said to my wife, listen, I've got a brand new career. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the esports thing. And then coronavirus came along and the <laughs> lockdown happened two days afterwards and the whole thing was cancelled. So um, that was a little bit annoying. <laughs> well, you pretty much invented esports back in the night. That's what Games Master was, wasn't it? I think you're right. I mean, it genuinely was esports. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of industry people uh, listening to this. Get your wallets out. Come on, it's payback time. I made, I made all those guys rich. Holy cow. You imagine the money that Games Master made for, for all these people. Bethesda, all these people, you know. Yeah, we, we need you they'd back, been, They'd have been nothing. Yeah, we need you back on stage doing these things. We'll see. Well, Dominic, you know, the fact that we're still talking about Games Master all this time after it's finished on TV, I mean, proves just how special it was to us all and what an important part of our childhood. And that golden age of video games, it's just been incredible to get the inside story on it. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm really pleased that I started my whole career with the biggest thing I would ever do <laughs> and then worked my way down. It's uh, certainly an interesting career tra trajectory. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everyone, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. And of course, we can watch you on Twitch. You're on there. Is it 5pm every day UK time? 5pm UK time. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's uh, I, I basically prepare sixty minutes of stuff, and a lot. Of, it's basically supposed to replicate what my radio shows in Canada were about. So there'd be like random stuff from the news, um, and then just stories, stories from my weird and wonderful life. And what I, what the greatest thing for me about Twitch is the, the completely interactive chat room. So I have all these ideas and then it gets thrown out the window because people will post something in the chat room and will go off in that direction. So it's if you like the randomness of Games Master, it's, it's very random. Um, if you're coming to see me uh, talk and stream video games, uh, that's not what the main daily show is. I, I, I will be doing that at some point at the weekends, but... I don't know if I can do it in a... I'm sure I can do it in a dominant diamond way. I just need to find the right game. I actually did. When I was testing Twitch, I did a couple of hours on Goat Simulator, yeah. which was incredible <laughs> fun. And I actually... I, and I realized Goat Simulator is probably the greatest Games Master challenge that we would ever have <laughs> 
if we were doing the show today. Goat Simulator was made for Games Master. So yeah, I'll probably stream that at some point. I'll do game streaming at some point. But at the moment, it's uh, it's entertainment. It's a light entertainment show uh, on Twitch. Well, we'll put a link in our show notes. Everyone should check it out. Hang out with Dominic in the afternoon. Thank it's you. such a giggle. Thanks again for coming on, Dominic. It's been so good to talk to you. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Ravi. <laughs>